0: Well, we have been uh, in the book of Genesis. We are zooming right along, and we're going to come to chapter 6 today, and we're going to talk about those crazy Nephilim, all right? Genesis 6, 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. I think that's pretty clear. It speaks for itself. You are dismissed, right? Well, let me put up, this is the classic uh, paradigm shift illustration. Um, Just take a quick look at that picture. Now, let me ask you a question how many of you see a duck? Raise your hand if you see a duck. Put your hands down. How many of you see a bunny? Raise your hand if you see a bunny. Okay. So uh, if you look at it this way, if this is the bill, the, the, the duck is looking that way, and there's his bill, right? Um, that's a duck. But now, if you look at the nose of the bunny, and he's looking that way, and these are his ears, do you see it now? Okay. So it's either a duck or a bunny, depending how you look at it, okay? Now, sometimes, okay, stop talking amongst yourselves over here, okay. <laughs> is it, we don't, we're not going to vote on this. This is just a, okay. <laughs> sometimes Bible interpretation can be like this duck bunny. You, you read it and you go, oh, that's as clear as day, I see what that, that's saying. And then maybe you read another verse over here, or somebody gives you another perspective, and boom, there's this paradigm shift, and you go, What, what was I thinking? It obviously doesn't mean what I thought it meant. Now it means this. Okay? Some uh, scriptures are like that. In fact, some whole theological systems are like that. You look at it one way, and you go, Oh, that's clearly saying this. But wait a minute. You look at it from another perspective and it means something completely different. Now, um, the scripture in Genesis 6 about the Nephilim is a classic section of scripture where there are different opinions, different interpretations of who these Nephilim really are. In fact, um, we're going we're to cover three common views Really, it's summed up in verse 4. The Nephilim, who are these Nephilim, were on earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God, so so we want to ask, who are the Nephilim? When the sons of God, who are the sons of God, came into the daughters of man, who are the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now there are three common views that good, solid people hold to. So, um, by the way, you go, what's at stake here? Salvation at stake? Is Should we split a church over your view of the Nephilim? No. You know what? Good, solid people hold to, to these different views, and there's no salvation issue at stake. It would be funny if a church did split over the Nephilim. We are... What's the name of your church? First Nephilim of Elburn. What do you take a stand on? Who the Nephilim really were? um, But it is interesting to, to be exposed to the three different views. The first view is the fallen angel view. This view says that the sons of God are fallen angels, in other words, demons, that married women, so the women are the daughters of men, and had children. These children, the Nephilim, were mighty men, men of renown, and giants. So uh, this view says that demons actually interbred with women and produced half-breed, half-human, half-demonic creatures that roamed the earth before the flood. Okay? Now um the biggest argument for this view is that the term uh, sons of god is a, a term that's used of angels elsewhere in job for example now there was a day when the sons of god came to present themselves before the lord and satan also came among them so this is talking about angels and demons and satan himself being presented before god so sons of god is a term that is used elsewhere to refer two angels. That's probably the biggest argument for this view. A couple of arguments against this view. One, the context. There's nothing in the context to have us think it's talking about angels. In fact, in chapter 4, there's a genealogy of Cain. In chapter 5, there's a genealogy, human genealogy uh, of Seth. It's talking about descendants of humans, so there's nothing in the context to have us think about angels. Right? In fact, the only angels that we've, we've read about so far in the Bible up to this point, it's the, uh, the seraphim that God places in the Garden of Eden. So the context, it's really, it really seems to be out of context to be thinking that these are angels. Then there's this comment by Jesus. Remember, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, it was actually the Sadducees came up to Jesus and they said, Jesus, let me present a scenario to you. There's this woman, she marries a man and he dies. And the law says that her brother is supposed to marry her to have children. Well, there's this case where uh, uh, the guy died and she married the brother and then he died and they married another brother and then he died and married another brother and that happened seven times. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And I always say the side lesson there is don't marry that woman. Okay, um, but the uh, the answer Jesus gives is this: for in the resurrection, they humans neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So now some people want to make a distinction between angels on earth and angels in heaven. I don't know that you can really do that. Um, bottom line, the argument would be angels don't marry. So to read this as angels or demons marrying human women seems to go against this. Okay? So those are the two arguments against it. Now, um, I debated whether to go into all this. I'm going to do it quickly. There are three verses in the New Testament that at first seem to be supporting this view. Right? The first one is in 1 Peter 3. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sin the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit now stop right there very clear verse that's the gospel right there Christ died in your place you trust in him your sins are totally covered by his death you are given his righteousness the righteous one dies for the unrighteous. I always think it's important to get the gospel message in every message. Okay, there's the gospel. Okay, but now Peter goes on. He says, Christ was made alive in the spirit, speaking of the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. You go, what in the world is that? Well, one interpretation is that this is referring to the days of Noah. um, And the spirits are the demons who, during the days of Noah, were put in prison. And in between Christ's death and resurrection, he, in the spirit, went to that prison and proclaimed not a salvation message, but victory over them. Okay, Uh, That's a, a common interpretation of this passage. Are you aware, though, <laughs> that there are many interpretations of this passage? And I'm going to uh, let you be exposed to one that, that goes back as far as Augustine. Augustine held this, and this is what's in Wayne Grudem's book. He says, here's what's really going on. The people to whom Christ preached in the Spirit through Noah were unbelievers on the earth at the time of Noah. But Peter calls them spirits in prison because they are now in the prison of hell, even though they were not just spirits but persons on earth when the preaching was done. The NASB says Christ preached to the spirits now in prison. So it would be Christ in the spirit. Back in the time of Noah, he preached through, through Noah, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. They're now in prison, and the spirits are people because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. In other words, um, there's no concept here of Christ in between his death and resurrection, going to hell and proclaiming anything. This is just saying that Christ, through Noah, the preacher of righteousness, was speaking. And the, the people uh, that, that went to hell, in essence, um, they're in hell now, but Christ spoke through Noah back then, all right? So there's a way to interpret this as demons. There's also a way to interpret it as not demons. Speaking of Peter in Second Peter, he says this, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, okay, so that's, that's Unit one, he's talking about angels being put in chains of gloomy darkness. Then he brings up another example. If he did not spare the ancient world but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, that's two. Third example, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous lot, that's three, and if he rescued righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct uh, conduct of the wicked, so he's given four examples, then what? Well, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So people say, well, see, here you've got the angels, the demons being cast into hell during the time of Noah. But here's the question. Are we to read verse 4 and 5 as one event, or are these four distinct events? In other words, this, this event, you know, clearly there are, there are demons in hell, chained, either metaphorically or ho- however you want to want conceive of it, but are we to connect these angels with Noah, or are these four distinct events? Now, uh, Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah are connected, so there could be a connection here, but not necessarily. Okay. Then there's a third one in, in Jude, And the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Seems to be talking about the same event here in Peter. There's some demons under chains in some sense. Then verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing uh, a punishment of eternal fire. Now in Jude, he seems to be using the same sermon illustrations. He's talking about these angels and Sodom and Gomorrah, but no mention of Lot and no mention of Noah. So this really doesn't feed in uh, to to, uh, the discussion. All that to say, I don't know that the New Testament verses can be used to support the, uh, the idea that the Nephilim were the product of demons and human women having babies. All right? But that's the, uh, let's call that the fallen angel view. Let me give you a second view, very common view, called the Sethite view. The Sethite view says the sons of God are viewed as godly men from the line of Seth, and the daughters of men as ungodly women from Cain's line. Remember chapter 4? was about the line of Cain. Chapter 5, the line of Seth. These marriages produced wicked children, Nephilim, who became men of renown, possibly due to their extreme wickedness. Now, the advantage of this view is that it makes sense of the context. We're talking about the line of Cain in chapter 4, and the, the line of Seth in chapter 5. Um, we read in Cain's line that Cain kills his brother, and Lamech kills somebody. So we, we could conclude that the entire line of Cain is wicked. And in Seth's line, there's Enoch who walked with God, and he was raptured up into heaven. And there was Noah who walked with God. So you could conclude that the message here is uh, the, the daughters of men are the wicked women from Cain's line who... Uh, marry the godly men from the line of Seth. Okay. Now, uh, the, the advantage is it fits the context. The disadvantage is this. Remember when we, we studied Cain and Lamech? There is a question as to whether they truly repented or not. Right? In other words, is the author really saying the entire line of Cain is wicked and the entire line of Seth? Uh, is godly, and then let's say, let's say he is saying that. We've got the wicked Canaanites and the godly Sethites. Here's a question. If the Sethites are so godly, how could they all so easily intermarry these wicked women? I mean, occasionally you marry an unbeliever, but a whole bunch of them, how godly could they have been? Right, so that's, that's the disadvantage of that view. Let me give you a third view. The royalty view polygamous kings lusted for power and took wives from among the common people forcing them to join their harems okay so the advantage of this view is this the when it says that they took women as they chose that does sound like they just went around and grabbed a bunch of women okay so it sounds like harem building and, of course, the offspring of these kings uh, would be princes. They could be men of renown, famous men. Okay? Here's the downside of the, the royalty view. The wording, they took wives, does not necessarily mean they went around and grabbed a bunch of women and started a harem. In fact, that's the exact same phrase that is used of Isaac marrying Rebecca. It was a monogamous relationship. He took her. They were in love. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean polygamous harem building. Okay? And then here's another question. So a bunch of kings had harems. Why destroy the whole world with the flood? Okay. So you say, well, what view do you lean toward, Pastor Brian? None of them. None of them. There's a view I lean toward that's held by uh, John Salehammer, who's a a very well-respected Old Testament scholar. Um, There's a professor at Moody, Dr. Wexler, who's an Old Testament scholar. And Jesus of Nazareth holds this view, too. Okay. So (laughs) this view... This view would say, we've been duped by the chapter divisions. Chapter 6, you, you read this and then we get into the world is wicked and then God brings a flood. Okay. This view would say that these verses are better to be the conclusion of the genealogy of Seth in chapter 5. In other words, chapter 6 should start with verse 5 of of Genesis 6. So this is the conclusion of the genealogy. Okay? What's it saying? Well, you read the genealogy, and then basically all this is saying is the earth became populated through the marriage of, you ready? Men and women. The sons of God are men. The daughters of men are women. And all it's saying is the Nephilim, the men of renown, are some of the people mentioned in that genealogy. They, they lived for 900 years. They were well known. All right, And even there were Nephilim before and after. It doesn't mean before and after the flood. It's The Nephilim started to appear when the, the, the daughters of, of men and the sons of God started to get married to one another. All it's saying, it's a cap on the whole... Genealogy saying the earth now became really populated because men and women got married. Okay, Then, after this, you get into the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually, and he decides to flood uh, the world. But there would be a division. In other words, this is not necessarily evil up here. This is just saying that men and women got married. They had lots and lots of babies. Uh, Henry Morris believes that before, uh, before the flood, there could have been as many as 7 billion people on the earth in that short of amount of time. Okay? Now you say, what do you mean this is Jesus' view? Well, I'm kind of being funny here, but at the same time, Jesus refers to this in the Olivet Discourse. Matthew twenty four thirty six. but concerning that day and hour. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So, speaking of the exact date of his return, even Jesus did not know. You go, how could that be? Jesus is one person, fully, defi- fully divine, fully human. His divine nature was infallible. And omniscient. His human nature was infallible, but not omniscient. There were things he didn't know as a human, like when he would return, even though the father knew it. And you go, I don't understand all that. Good, you're in a good place. Okay? It's a mystery, Caleb, it's a mystery. <laughs> we debate over whether there really can be mysteries or not, but okay. Um, now, that's verse 1. He's just saying, you don't know the day I'm going to return, and I don't even know that date. But be watching for it. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Oh, the days of Noah before the Genesis 6 flood. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking Marrying and giving, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. When Jesus comments on the marrying, the daughters of man and the sons of God, he doesn't talk about Cain's line or... Uh, uh, Seth's line, he doesn't talk about demons in her... He he basically says, here's the warning. Just as people in Noah's day were eating and drinking, and don't take that as evil, they were just eating and drinking, marrying and giving and celebrating, and they were so caught up in the ordinary things of life that they didn't listen to the preacher of righteousness, Noah... They were preoccupied with, with their own little things. And the flood came and swept them away. Right Here's the message. Don't be like the people of Noah's day, ignoring the preacher's call for repentance and living life as if all that mattered was eating, drinking, and life's celebrations. Okay? Now, speaking of interpretive difficulties when it comes to end times. There's a multitude of different interpretations about how how it's going to all pan out. First of all, you've got your ah-mill, your pre-mill, and your post-mill question. Then you've got your pre-tribulation rapture question, your mid-tribulation rapture question, your post-tribulation rapture question, and your pre-wrath tribulation rapture question. And then you've got the preterist interpretation, the historicism interpretation, the futurism interpretation, and the idealism interpretation. And all nine of those, or all eight, nine, ten, eleven of those, can be interchanged with one another. And we're going to sit and figure it all out right now. Now... But in all those views, all of them have to deal with a tension in the, in the Olivet discourse. Here's the tension. How do you synthesize, on the one hand, Jesus saying it's going to be pretty normal? People are going to be eating and drinking and getting married and going to baseball games? I threw that in there. OK? Normalcy. With, on the other hand, great tribulation. He says this. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold So here you've got, it's going to be a terrible time of tribulation, and you've got uh, persecution going on. But in the verse over here, you've got "Ah, people are getting married and eating and drinking and celebrating, and boom, it comes like a flood. How do you synthesize the normal passage with the tribulation passage? Now, let me give you two two options. One is the pre-tribulation rapture view. The pre-tribulation rapture rapture view says Jesus isn't just coming back once, he's coming back twice. He's coming back the first time secretly, quietly, unexpectedly, and he's going to rapture the church. Then everybody left. There'll be a time of tribulation. Some people will get converted. Then he'll come back in glory. He'll, he'll spare those people and destroy the rest of the world. So one way to synthesize uh, ordinary life with Tribulation is to say he comes secretly, suddenly, to rapture the first, the first part of his second coming. But then there's tribulation poured out on the remaining people, and then he comes back in glory the second time. Okay, That's the whole dispensational, moody Bible, left behind, uh, MacArthur, Swindoll view. Okay, May I suggest a second possibility? I'm going to call it the simultaneous realities view. The simultaneous realities view. If you go back to the days of Noah, there seems to be the same tension in the text between tribulation and normalcy. On the one hand, it says this in Genesis 6, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. I mean, it just sounds like a horrible time. I mean, it sounds like ISIS has filled the earth. On the other hand, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Wait a minute, sounds like they're having a wedding reception, and Life is ordinary. I think you got the same tension before the flood that you have before Christ's return. Talk of terrible tribulation and persecution and ordinary life going on. How do you synthesize these two? Can you imagine a scenario where both of these things are going on at the same time? Well... According to the Pew Research Center, over 75% of the world's population lives in areas with severe religious restrictions. Now, pause right there. Over 75% of the population of the world, it's not saying that 75% of the world is being persecuted, it's just 75% of the world's population live in countries where there is severe persecution. Many of these people are Christians. Also, according to the United States Department of State, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their governments or surrounding neighbors simply because of their unbelief in Jesus Christ. This is from Open Doors. At least 100 million Christians are being persecuted for their faith worldwide. So if you go to Open Doors, they have the uh, persecution watch map. Now, this is over on the other side of the world. Okay? Red is extreme persecution. So you got uh, Nigeria, and here's Somalia, Sudan. Here's the whole Middle East. All right, we've got Syria, uh, uh, Syria, and Iraq, and Iran, and the the whole Middle East. Uh, The number one on the on the watch list is North Korea. Okay, then you got severe persecution in most of northern. Uh, Africa, again, Saudi Arabia, India, and moderate persecution in Asia and China. Okay, Now, here's what I want you to, to, to notice. While there's all this persecution going on to these Christians, let's throw in our side of the world. This isn't just North America. This is North and South America. It's just moderate persecution in Mexico, and Colombia. And to be honest, most of that is drug cartels who know that there's some money if you kidnap a missionary. right? How could it be so stark that over here, 75% of the world is living in countries where they're persecuted, and over here we're living in paradise? Okay? I think if an American Christian asked a North Korean Christian living in a labor camp or an Iraqi Christian who has just watched their father's head be chopped off in front of them, and you ask them, hey, do you hold to a pre-, mid-, or post-tribulation view of the rapture of the church? I think they would say, gee, let me get back to you on that. I haven't had time to study it because we're in the midst of tribulation right now. Okay. Now, I'm not saying I have the answer, but I do think we're in a scenario now where we're having graduation parties and preparing for weddings and baby showers and wedding showers and uh, we've got Little League and we've got uh, black hawk playoffs and the NBA playoffs and uh, just life goes on. Gee, I wonder, if the, I wonder if the church will go through the tribulation. Meanwhile, the other half of the church is going through tribulation right now. Okay, Let me, uh, let me read this. Her name is Mercy. Mercy is a 24-year-old Christian single mother who grew up in Gulak, Nigeria, when Boko Haram, which is the uh, Muslim group that kidnaps women and rapes them and makes them Muslim ha- into Muslim harems, okay, when Boko Haram invaded the town last September, Mercy took her baby and ran for the mountains to hide with a group of other people. Two Boko Haram men grabbed me. Then two others came, Mercy said. They took me to their leader. Once she arrived at the house where they would be keeping her, Mercy saw other women and girls. Some looked terrified, others dejected as though they had resigned to their new lives in captivity. They wore hijabs, most having been forced to convert to Islam. Mercy asked another woman how life was in the house. She told me that they are are at least being fed. She advised Mercy to just cool it and obey Boko Haram until she sees a chance to escape. Mercy learned that her captors often took men into the house to slaughter them in front of the women to intimidate them. She decided not to wait but to run. Her baby boy was waiting for her in the mountains along the Nigerian-Cameroon border. She knew she would likely be killed trying to escape, but she had to. While everyone was kneeling for evening prayers, she went to a restroom, jumped through the window above a toilet seat. She climbed over the barbed wire fence and ran back to the mountains under the moonlight to find her son, Wisdom. One of her fellow escapees was Lottie, a 16-year-old girl, who was held in the house for four months. She saw women and girls brought in weekly. The fighters forced Lottie to convert to Islam. They renamed her Fatima, but Lottie refused to follow Islam. She was beaten for days because she did not obey the imam. Lottie's legs are scarred with welts from beatings she endured in the house. But she does not only carry the physical scars, she's haunted by frequent killings she was forced to watch of men who refused to join Boko Haram. One day in December, the captors told Lottie and the others they would all be married to fighters within the next two weeks. We cried and pleaded, and they said, if you don't stop crying, we will kill you. They also warned those who thought of escaping by saying, wherever you go, whether you're in Yola or anywhere, we will still go after you and kill you. So they intimidate them by killing the men, beheading the men in front of them, and saying, if you try to escape, we will track you down. So that's youth group over there. Imagine an American Christian saying, so, what's your worship like in your church? Do you do like Matt Redman? And, and they say, we have no Bibles. We have one hymnal. We don't have instruments. Every time we meet, we risk our lives. Um, now, I don't bring this up to shame us. All right? I bring this up to point out the very real possibility that we may be in the days of Noah. Okay? If Christ came back today, would you be like Noah, devoting yourself to building the ark, building, saving people, proclaiming the gospel, or would you be like those who are swept away, preoccupied with eating and drinking and celebrating this and celebrating that? You know, one way to know whether you're ready of course is by asking have you repented of your sins and trusted Christ as as your Savior but the fruit of that will be a life that's not preoccupied with eating and drinking and celebrations and and those things aren't even necessarily bad. Okay, we're not talking about partying and getting drunk. We're just talking about being so preoccupied with the things of life that Christ isn't even a, a, on your radar most of the time. Let me, let me close with a verse to meditate on as we go into communion. 1 Corinthians 7. Is this your mindset? This is what I mean, Brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. What does that mean? It means Christians marry, and they go to market, and they have a job, but they're not so caught up in those things that that's all they live for. A mark of salvation is that you live in the world without being so immersed in the world that you're no different than the world. Whether it's school or work or your lawn or graduation parties or going to college or marriage problems or problems with your kids, are you so immersed in the little trivial things on your plate that if you were living in the times of Noah, the flood would sweep you away? Or are you immersed in building the ark and trying to get people on the ark? What I I want to call us to do is repent. Repent of being so caught up in things that don't matter. And get busy building the ark. And getting people on the ark. So here's my question. Do you need to repent of being caught up in the things of the world? And what are you going to do today to change? What will you do to change it all so you're not so caught up in the things of this world? Why don't we take... Just a few moments, maybe turn the lights down, and the worship team, come on up, and just take a few moments and think about that before we have Communion.